We would not be upset if the Lord came back and we were able to worship Him in spirit and truth and without sin for eternity before the end of the service. But if He does not, then we will turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we will read what He wants for us to study and to learn from this morning. 1 Peter 1, I'm sorry, 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll read six verses together. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drunken parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And Father, we thank you that through the gospel we can be alive in the Spirit as you are. Father, I pray that as we read and study your word, that you would continue to refine us, to change us, to mold us into the image of your Son for your glory. In his name, amen. Well, as you can tell after reading this passage, we are yet again going to be talking about suffering. You know, we've talked about suffering for about as many weeks as we've been talking about holiness, um, the, the holiness that God has for us, and about as many weeks as we've been talking about the gospel that brings about holiness, that brings about the persecution and the suffering. Uh, many, many weeks we've spent discussing suffering. This hasn't been a theme for Peter through First Peter, suffering. This hasn't been a, a chord that runs throughout. This has been a constant focus for Peter throughout this letter, suffering. And we've talked about it from a few different angles. It started out with those generic various trials in chapter 1, and then we, led, we read about the sufferings of Christ that were prophesied as part of God's plan to save us. And we're called to holiness as part of that plan and hope in chapter 1. It comes through Jesus' life and suffering and death and resurrection. And we were taught in chapter 2 that people rejected Jesus, the Savior and Lord, and now that we've accepted Him and we've received Him, believed in Him, we're transformed into new people, a new nation, a royal priesthood, because of God's mercy toward us. But that wasn't just extra information that we read about when we read about Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. People rejected Jesus, and he suffered for it, and so now that we have received, now that we have accepted Jesus, they're going to reject us as well, and we are also going to suffer, and we are going to keep living the way that he has called us to live in holiness, no matter what happens, um, no matter what happens and comes against us, we continue to live in that holiness that he's called us to, as Jesus, that was quiet, wasn't it? As Jesus lived, that's how we're called to live. And so we're called to be holy no matter what's happening in persecution of words or reviling or maligning or persecution of deeds, hurtful, harmful things against us, very real suffering that can 
happen to us and does come to our brothers and sisters around the world, we are living for His name's sake. And we looked at how we're to retaliate against those people with blessings and not doing back to them what they've done to us, but, but blessing them in return. We've been taught not to fear the suffering, but to endure with hope and to be able to give an answer for the reason the, for the hope that we have within us. We're, we're able to, to give that hope and to share that hope because of God's work within us. And then we looked at last week four examples of what God is doing through suffering to bring about His perfect plan. So we've been talking for a few weeks about suffering, for, for several weeks about suffering. And um, there's more to come. <laughs> Peter's not done with this idea of suffering. Remember, um, chapter 5, if you look across the page in verse 12, it's part of the reason that Peter wrote this epistle to us. He says in chapter 5, verse 12, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. Right? So he says, I, I'm declaring, I'm giving you the truth, I'm giving you the, the facts and, and the information of the truth, but exhorting, calling you alongside because we need to be standing firm in this. And a key verse for us was chapter 4, verse 19, Lord willing, we'll get to in a few weeks. He says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So suffering, it's not a theme, it's not a chord, it's a constant focus for us in 1 Peter. But I want to ask you, is this a popular topic for churches to be preaching on um, this morning, if you were to go to other churches, would you expect to hear another message on suffering? Um, maybe, and especially not a series of messages on suffering, right? Um, this is maybe not a, a message that, um, that is, is exciting or that's, that's popular or that it would be um, expected to be found in many churches. There are maybe some churches that would touch on suffering, maybe, maybe talk about, you know, acknowledge that it exists, but then have, it, have a loaded up message about a lot of positivity, right? There are a lot of messages out there about positivity and, and optimism. And maybe you hear those messages and, and everything just turns into, it's going to be okay, it's going to be positive, it's going to be great. Um, even, even many uh, churches will use the Bible to get everyone excited about good things and about positivity and encouragement. Uh, but so this is a little bit different, I think, maybe for many of us to, to come to church and hear several messages on suffering and not be excited and, and talk more about the positive things. One of the things I did this week in, in my study was to listen to a few other pastors, a couple of different, few different pastors, and, and what they had to say about suffering. And there are a lot of really energetic pastors out there, a lot of really motivating um, speakers and pastors out there. Um, they're really upbeat, and they're really motivating. When they get finished, the crowds are cheering, you know, and they're, they're excited, and they're ready to get out there and, and face anything that comes along, right? I mean, they just want to go meet the world. Um, there's, a, there's a song, it's not on the Christian radio, but there's a song out there that kind of captures this. I got the one I love beside me, my trouble's behind me, I'm alive and I'm free, who wouldn't want to be me, <laughs> right? Just excited and, and, and happy and energetic and positive. But too often, those, those messages are, that are exciting aren't necessarily based on something that's firm, maybe a foundation that's firm. It's, it's some sayings, it's some phrases, it's maybe some memorable phrases and, and things maybe that resonate with people, but there's a little bit of vagueness. Maybe there's some fuzziness in what the 
sayings actually mean. They, they don't really carry you through when the suffering actually comes. Many use worldly wisdom, some use cliches, and others use the Bible, but not faithfully with the Scriptures and, and what the Lord has told us. Um, here's an example, and I want to give you, the, I want to talk through this example just, again, by way of introduction for <laughs> these verses that we're looking at. Uh, Romans 8, 28 is a really popular verse for those exciting pastors, right? Uh, those exciting uh, messages uh, for a lot of encouragement and, and encouragement over pessimism. And the verse itself is always and absolutely true. But here's the verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Right? We know that verse. A lot of us have memorized that verse, and we cling to that verse, and that's a good thing. The verse is correct. It's always and absolutely true and correct, and it is encouraging to us. But there are generally two ways that the verses that that verse in particular gets misused, either by those who quote it or by those who hear it. And the first way is what we'll call a universal truism use. The verse is quoted to a crowd of people. It's given as a universal truism that all things work out for anybody and everybody all the time uh, for good. And to think about that is encouraging, right? I mean, you know, well, God's working everything out for anybody, all, everybody, all the time uh, for good. It's all good. He's good. We're all good, right? I mean, this is, this is great. It's often not qualified with the words that come directly before it and directly after it so that it's not a universal truism that everyone can cling to. What comes before is, for those who love God, this is true. And, and that's readily accepted enough, right? I mean, people normally that are at a church would say, yeah, I love God. You know, that's, that, I, who's going to argue with that? Except that loving God is not having a favorable opinion of God, right? Um, knowing some things about God is not loving God. Loving God means not loving myself or this world. Loving God means recognizing that He loved me before I deserved it when I could never deserve it. He loved me first. Loving God means recognizing that and loving Him with my whole being. It means longing to please Him. It means longing to be in His presence which means not sinful. It means loving God means a rejection of self and sin in the world. It means longing to obey Him and to be with Him and to please Him in everything. It means to love Him and not anything else. Or even if I'm loving everything else in comparison to my love for Him, there's nothing else there. That's love of God. And if that's not true of me, I have no business claiming this verse as a universal truism that God's going to do everything good for me. If I don't really care about Him, I don't care what He says. I don't really want to be with Him. I don't really want to have much to do with what He says or, or is about. I can't really say that I love Him. So I'm not really sure that I can claim this verse. That's what comes before it. What comes after it, for those who are called according to His purpose, church family, what is God's ultimate purpose for everything? <laughs> His glory, Right? And I'm glad other people hear that. <laughs> They're going to look into it. But God's glory is His ultimate purpose. So what is it about us simple human beings, us weak, sinful, simple human beings that could bring God glory, eternal glory? Well, it's by taking us and transforming us into something different, right? That's God's ultimate purpose. That's what brings Him glory. It's to bring us out of all of that, to save us and to sanctify us. Again, as we've talked about, holiness 
brings God glory. That's his will. That's why God elected us. That's why Christ prays for us that's, and prayed for us. That's why Christ died. That's why he ransoms us. That's, why he, he, that's what God wants from us, holiness that brings him glory. That's his purpose. And that's the purpose that we must be called to and respond to. Or again, we have no business claiming this verse that everything's going to be great for me because God just wants to be great to me. Suddenly, after recognizing that and realizing the context of just what happens before and after that, it's maybe not such an exciting verse immediately, but maybe, again, something that's a foundation for us, that's something that's godly true, (laughs) true from God, that we can sink our teeth into and we can stand firm on so that it's ultimately more exciting than something that's just immediately feel good and exciting. So that's one way, that's the first way, that people can either misquote or mishear this promise. The other way uh, that this can be misheard or misquoted is what we'll call a good confusion. The good confusion, this, and it's not good to be confused. We're not saying that. That's not what God is, that's not what God is or does. Um, this means a confusion about what good means. When this verse is quoted out there, for all to hear, again, not only do all apply it to themselves, whether they love God or not, whether they care about His purposes, they define good however they want. Right? If, we're, if we're not careful to define it in the context and in, in what good means, uh, people take the word good and they hear what they want to hear. Right? And we do that ourselves. I, I've caught myself doing that as well. Rather than what God points to as good, it, it's just broadcast out as everything will be good. It's good, he's good, you're good, we're all good. Uh, for some people, good means self-improvement. Right? It's for my good. It makes me stronger. It prepares me for what I want to do and what I need to do, and so that's the good. Others hear good as in things will all work out to a favorable conclusion in my estimation, right? Things will work out the way I want them. I don't like the way things are right now, but I will like what happens afterwards. That's kind of what we hear often when we hear this verse quoted as good, right? I'll I'll be healed. My loved one will be healed. Um, Somehow God will just give me the money that I need to pay that bill. Somehow uh, I'll just get out of this pickle that I'm in, Um, the bad things will stop and the good things will come and often better than the way that they were before. That's what we hear as good. So the word good becomes temporal, comes self-defined and even self-focused from this verse. And again, if that's what I'm after, if that's the good that I'm after, I don't really have a lot of business claiming that verse and getting excited about what may not happen. See, the good for which God works all things is explained again in those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And if we're not sure about that, verse 27 directly before verse 28 says that the Holy Spirit is praying for us that uh, God will have His will. And then what comes right after this verse is verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the good that God is after when things come at us, in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. So the good, again, is making saints out of sinners, making us into the image of Jesus. That's God's will in verse 27. That's his purpose in verse 28. That's what he's after in verse 29. Now, I want to say that this is good for us, okay? This is good. And again, this should be exciting to us. This should be something that we rejoice over and look forward to, but maybe not in the immediate spring-up emotional kind of good more in the long-lasting, careful to consider what God has said and is doing in our life and for eternity kind of good. 
And so whether the person quoting the verse is intentionally being vague with the universal truism or the good confusion or just we hear it that way, uh, the verse can become misunderstood. It can become misapplied. And it might bring an immediate good feeling and a type of hope, but it won't last because this verse, along with the verses that we've been reading in 1 Peter and any other verses that we find that talk about suffering, are not a magic potion for making everything turn out the way that we want, are they? They're not a magic wand to make things appear that I need or bad things stop. It's not a magic spell that I can chant and chant over and over until God gets rid of the suffering. You know, sometimes it's God's plan for the suffering to continue through our whole life. Sometimes it's God's plan for the suffering only to end in death. Sometimes, if I can say it this way, brother and sister, sometimes there is nothing good, humanly speaking, that comes about from our suffering. I mean, we have, to, we have to be real with our life and with people's lives and acknowledge that there might not be anything good that comes out of this, humanly speaking, because the good that God has is ultimate good, and it is for our good. It will be ultimately good for us, but it's ultimately the good for His glory to be seen and acknowledged for Him to be worshipped. And so what we've been learning about suffering is not just that it's God who brings it into our life to accomplish His will, and and not just that He's there with us through it all, that's all true. What we've been learning from His Word is even more substantial truth, the nuts and the bolts of really enduring suffering, what God is accomplishing through it in us and in others for His glory. And so it wouldn't necessarily be a good idea for us only to just get all hopping and jumping exciting about a message because we may not ever get out of suffering that comes until he calls us home. We should still get excited and, and pumped up about the fact that God is working good and that it's, it's going to be good for us forever, but for the right reasons and in truth and for what we're really looking forward to. We, we're learning forever truth from God that should bring us joy and peace and hope, but lasting and dependable joy and peace and and faith and hope and love and those things that we can minister to our own hearts and to the hearts and minds of those around us as we endure suffering. Not empty promises or misunderstandings that can come about, right? And so as we continue to talk about suffering in 1 Peter, remember that Peter is talking about it yet again and he's not making any apology for it. He's been talking about it for a while, it includes this passage, and he's going to talk about it some more, uh, but there's not any kind of, you know, sorry to bring this up, but this is what's happening. Um, Even if this isn't what we might want to hear again this morning, it's what we need to hear, brother and sister, because even though there have only been some people talking badly about Christians in the letter here, the Holy Spirit, through Peter, is warning them of coming physical persecution that's going to come upon them, and it's going to be bad. On top of all the bad talk, brothers and sisters, that also seems to be where our civilization is heading. It started out as only a few voices that, that didn't like Christianity, that didn't like Christians. They, you know, they talked bad about Christians or Christianity, and only a few people would, you know, stand to listen to them. But those voices are growing louder in our time, and there are becoming many more of those voices, and there are many people listening to those voices And we are hearing revilings and slander, and and many people are agreeing with that and joining in. And so we're here in 1 Peter talking about suffering again because we've got to be ready. 
Suffering is coming for us. Not just the suffering that we already know about because we live in a sin-cursed world, because, you know, we mess up, but, but suffering for living with, with the fact that we're living for our Savior. The, the kind of suffering that comes because we name the name of Jesus, because we're living for righteousness, that kind of suffering is coming. And what Peter calls us to in chapter 4 is to change our way of thinking about suffering. Change your thought pattern. Another way of putting it, some of your translations have the word attitude. Uh, we may need an attitude adjustment, he's saying, about our thinking about suffering. We need to do it now before it really starts, because when it starts, it's a really bad time to try to figure out how to do this, right? Have you ever tried to set up a brand new tent when you're camping, when the rain is coming down and it's windy and things are just blowing, it's not working very well? Have you ever tried to do that? I don't recommend it. Maybe you could just imagine it. <laughs> Or have you, I mean, have you tried to figure out how to drive a manual transmission vehicle in the middle of an emergency? That's a really bad time to try to figure that out, isn't it? So we need to straighten out our thinking about suffering. We need to do this now before the suffering begins so that we can be ready. Because we might think of suffering as a really inconvenient thing, right? We might think of difficulty as something that just gets in our way. Um, Troubles are unnecessary, especially suffering for good. I mean, I wasn't even doing anything wrong, and now I'm suffering. Like, you know, we might think that something's wrong here, something's out of ordinary. But Peter's been teaching us how to change our thought pattern, change our thinking, so that we can be ready for it because it's not out of the ordinary for Christians. That's what he's trying to get across, right? It's not going to be out of the ordinary for us to suffer for righteousness. Start learning now before the storm comes how to set up our tent, <laughs> That's what, he's, that's what he's going to be saying here. Chapter 4, he says it. Since, therefore, verse 1, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The way that you and I have been suff uh, thinking about suffering may be wrong, okay? So he says we need to change it. It needs to be replaced by the way that Jesus thought of suffering and the way that he went through it. If you read through the Gospels, how many times do you see Jesus complaining about the suffering that's coming for him? There aren't any times. He, he, zero times does Jesus complain. He tells them. He lets them know suffering's coming. It's going to be bad. But he never complains about it. He, even all the way to the cross, he never complained about it. He had a different way of thinking about suffering than we do often. His attitude was correct. When ours doesn't match, ours is wrong. Okay, and that's what, that's what we're learning here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So Peter says, arm yourselves with this way of thinking, Jesus' way of thinking. And it's not the first time he's brought up the mind in 1 Peter, right? We remember from chapter 1, verse 13, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded. Chapter 2, he says, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God we endure. Chapter 3, verse 8, have unity of mind. Chapter 3, verse 15, always be prepared to make a defense for anyone for the reason for the hope that is in you. So, so our mind, this is not a, a new concept here, but now he's saying arm yourselves. Uh, and the word means to, to get your weapon, to get your arms, get your equipment put on. In the military, uh, there is a threat always of bad guys out there that want to drop dirty bombs on you. You know, not just bombs that will blow up, but bombs that will blow up and spread chemical or biological or radiological or nuclear stuff all over you. And if the explosion doesn't get you, then all that other stuff will. And so there's a mission-oriented protective posture, MOP, everything in the military is an acronym, right? Um, it, MOP, and, and the highest level of MOP is MOP-4 to protect you from those dirty bombs, those chemicals that might come at you. 
and you, you're covered from head to toe, and you've got a gas mask on, you've got, you've got coverings over your head, and gloves for your hands, and, and boots, and, and everything just completely covers you up. That's the idea here that Peter has. Mop four, okay? Get yourself equipped with this new way of thinking. What we've been learning the last few weeks is what Christ thinks about suffering and how we should think, not fearing it, not uh, fearing those who bring it about, but knowing that God is working through it, right? Not being afraid of it, not trying to shy away from it. It's for our good, primarily for His glory, but our good and His good, and He's going to bring us through it, and He's got glory at the end for us through it. Those are the things we've been talking about. And if you want a refresher on the way that Jesus thinks about suffering for righteous, I would say go back and listen to the message, but instead I say just read this, <laughs> right? This is the inspired Word of God, not what I have to say. So I commend to you to read the Word of God, but now Peter answers this question, well, how do I know if I'm doing it? How, if I, how do I know if I'm ready yet? As I'm going through these messages, as I'm reading through these words, what does it look like in my life? There are three evidences here in verses 1 through 6 that we're doing it. And three evidences that all work together, we, we'll have all three of these, the results of arming ourselves with Jesus' way of thinking. Num number one, when you arm yourself with Jesus' way of thinking about suffering, you will, number one, live for the will of God. Verses one and two, you will live for the will of God, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. It's pretty well established by now that Christ suffered in the flesh, right? Through, through 1 Peter, we, we've got that part down. Uh, it's a pretty well-established fact that we should be following his example, right? We've got that down as well. Everyone who is following Jesus will suffer. And the way to think about suffering is how it brings God's glory. It's not to be feared. We think about how he's working it, right? That's the nutshell version. But again, read this word. Let the word reflect, uh, affect your thinking. Let the word control your thinking. Now, some people say that's called brainwashing. You know, let something else control your, your way of thinking. And in a sense, yes, it is. In a sense, no, it's not. Because we have all already been, the Bible teaches us, brainwashed by sin. And see, that's why we think about suffering the wrong way. That's why we think about life the wrong way sometimes and, and the bad things that happen. Sin has consumed our nature and our flesh, and it controls our thinking so much that we think everything's all about us. <laughs> You know, we think of suffering like, oh, I did something, or I need to do something, or I, I, me, me, right? We think about suffering. But, but really, the thinking is all about what God's doing and what He's accomplishing, what it's all about. And so we're already brainwashed by sin. Allowing the Word of God to come in and control our minds and our thinking is unbrainwashing the sin and then brainwashing us all over again. So in a sense, no, it's not brainwashing. In a sense, yes, that's exactly what it is. That's what we're talking about. Change your way of thinking, right? Well, you know, I, I spend 15 minutes a day reading the Word of God every day, so, you know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. And if you're reading the Word of God for 15 minutes a day, thank God for that and, and continue to do that. But think about how many hours there are in a day. And, and not just how little can I spend in the Word of God and then get on with my day, but how many of those 24 hours can I spend in this Word to change my thinking? Because the world gets 23 hours, 45 minutes when I spend 15 minutes. And so that's what Peter is saying here, continually, daily, hourly, if you can, if you need to, arm yourselves with this way of thinking, because the suffering is going to happen, but it's how you think about the suffering that determines how you respond to it. 
If you've armed yourself with the same way of thinking that Christ had and you suffer, he says, Peter says here in verse 1, you will cease from sin. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we can, we can become perfect? Like, I can become Mr. Perfect, Mr. Holy? No, it means what Peter says it means in verse 2. He says, ceased from sin, comma, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The ceasing from sin doesn't mean you become perfect. It, may be, it means you, you break away from that kind of thinking that influences your mind with sin. You know, it's like the baptism that's that dividing line. It, it doesn't save you, but it's that dividing line that says, yes, I'm on Jesus' side. <laughs> I'm not on my side. I'm not on the world's side anymore. I'm on Jesus' side. That's what suffering is. Suffering for righteousness is a dividing line that reveals how you think, what you think about, who you think about. When we're born, each of us has a goal. And from the moment we're born, it is, give me what I want. <laughs> Fulfill my desires, right? Babies cry out to let you know that they want something, they need something. Toddlers throw temper tantrums to let you know they want something or they need something. Children act out. Teens rebel to get what they want. Adults don't do anything different, do we? <laughs> we do it a little bit more sophisticated. We don't maybe stomp our feet and scream. Maybe some of us do, but we're, most of us don't. We're a little bit more sophisticated in, in manipulating and still getting what we want. That's our end goal when we're born. But when you come to Jesus, you stop living for the rest of your time. When you're suffering as He suffered, when you're thinking about suffering as He did, you stop living for the rest of your time in the desires of those human passions, those, those fleshly desires that we have. You don't live that same goal anymore of just getting what I want. You make a clean break in your thinking to have a new goal, fulfilling the will of God. Your whole understanding for your existence changes from get what I want to get what God wants. Uh, you have Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 in your notes, and, and we would go there, but for the, for the sake of our time together, we'll, we'll not go there. Read through those verses and, and, and especially notice verse 4 where it says, but God. Verses 1 through 3 is what we were living like and who we were, verse 4, but God. And then he changes us in verse 10, we live in the good works that he's prepared beforehand for us. Um, I call again to your attention chapter uh, 6 of Romans, verses 1 through 14. We read those verses last week. We won't read them again, but they're in your notes to remind yourself. You know, I'm living for, for him now. I'm not living for myself. He brings what he knows will be successful in achieving that goal. Not maybe achieving the goal of my happiness, getting what I want, having my desires met, but he brings into my life everything that's needed to accomplish his goal of making me a holy saint for him, for his use. You know, if, if we don't have his Holy Spirit working in us through his word in our hearts, you know, again, we'll look at suffering and we'll think, man, that was, that was terrible. Nothing good came out of that. You know, I mean, why is that happening? Bad stuff happens, it's inconvenient, it's terrible, it hurts, you know, it's not, it's not good. But when we're armed with the mind of Christ here, Peter teaches us, the Spirit in the Word working in our hearts and minds, we will see that all things that come against us are working in harmony with God's purpose for our good and for His good, for His purpose for us to become holy. And we'll work with God 
and cooperating with him through all of that rather than fighting against him or complaining, God, why? Where are you? What are you doing? What's happening here? <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll be submitting more to what he's got for us and why he's bringing us through what, what's happening. You know, I mean, even if we suffered to the point of death, what would that do? Well, that would just, that would bring his purpose to a completion, Right? We'd go home to be with him, and he'd remove us from our sin, and then his plan is complete, and there's nothing better for us. <laughs> that's, that's not a bad thing, right? The goal that God has for us and the goal that we have for ourselves now, the new goal will have been fulfilled if he calls us home. So we wouldn't worry about death. We won't worry about suffering, revilings and slanders and, and persecutions that will come. I'm not saying they're not going to hurt us. I'm not saying that they're not going to be terrible but we look forward to what God's going to do. And they're bringing about his will. And that's why John even teaches us in 1 John chapter 2. Remember what he says. He says in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Why not? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't have both, right? It's mutually exclusive in our hearts. Why? Verse 16 says in 1 John, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And he says to us, the world is passing away and its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we live for the will of God. So now take a moment. Look at your life. Evaluate your decision-making matrix. <laughs> you know, how do I make decisions? What do I have for breakfast? And, and where do I work? And what school do I go to? And, and, you know, what kind of meal should I have now? I mean, any decision that you have to make, what is the, deciding, the ultimate deciding factor? What is it that, that I'm after? Evaluate your lens for viewing the world. You know, does it always come down to like one or two soapbox issues? Is, is it always about what's happening to me and when I'm going to get what I want, when, when I get to have what I'm thinking about? Is it always a political thing? You know, it it's always boils down to politics or it always boils down to, you know, whatever the issue is that are important. Think about how you see the, the world and view the world, how you filter what you see in here. Consider how you spend your time, what you prioritize in your life. Maybe you think, as you're thinking about these things, you're considering and evaluating, maybe you find things that are only selfish. Peter says, change your thinking. Maybe you find things that are not selfish. You know, they don't begin and end with just me getting what I want. But somehow, I've, I've turned those good things even into bad things by wanting them more than what I want that God wants. He says, evaluate your thinking, change you're thinking. When we suffer for righteousness, that means we're probably not always going to have our desires and our passions fulfilled. But if we're thinking rightly as Jesus did, those things will fade away and the desires that Christ had will become our desires. You know, but if we don't have this kind of thinking and, and we have our desires not being met, you know, we might shrink back. We might think, ah, I can't hold firm to this. I can't hang on because God promised me that I would get out of it, and I'm not getting out of it. So we've got to be thinking the right way. We've got to be living for the will of God rather than for ourselves. So the first way that we can see evidence of whether we're thinking rightly is if we live for the will of God. There's a second way that you can tell if you've armed yourself with Jesus' way of thinking about suffering. Number two, you will leave sinful ways in the past. Verses 3 through 5. 
leave sinful ways in the past, for the time is past, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the time for living for sin, he says, is in the past. The, the time in the past suffices for that. The, the word is, that's more than enough. <laughs> We've had more than enough of that, okay? That's what, he's, that's what he means here. That's what he says. Um, all that the world wants to do, all that we did in our past, it's in the past, right? We don't live that way anymore. The world does. The world is called Gentiles here. They still live this way. Unsaved, lost people who don't know the Lord still live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, it may not look exactly the same as it did when Peter wrote this, but that's the way that we lived before Jesus. That's the way much of the world lives. In the cultural context of this letter, it wasn't just their daily lives and just, I want this and I want that, and so I'm going to act these ways, I'm going to do these things. It also included their worship of their false gods. It included it, the worship of those false gods was any and every kind of indecency and obscenity that you shouldn't imagine, you know, that we shouldn't even think about, the things that they would do. In fact, the things that they were required to do, they needed to have something to reduce their inhibitions. I mean, the natural conscience that God's placed within every person, they had to dull that. They had to get rid of that. They would drown it in alcohol. In these, in these uh, worship practices, in these parties that they would have, they would consume alcohol, but you can't just have a little bit of alcohol. They would keep drinking and keep drinking alcohol until they had no more conscience left. And then they could engage in the practices required by these false gods worship. And it would just, it, thankfully, the, the commentaries and the scholars don't get very deep into what they do, but it still makes you sick just to even think about it. They're fulfilling the darkest desires and they're free from anything that would even cause them to think about it. And Peter says coming to Jesus means coming out of all of that, leaving all of that behind you. Everything from the gross practices of pagan idol worship all the way up to the, just the daily living for me for myself. Whether we're just living for ourselves and our own comfort or living for some kind of false deity, we leave all of that behind to follow Jesus, to live for Him. And again, it looks different in our day. Some people today engage in alcohol for that reason, right? I'm just going to dull my senses and get rid of any of my inhibitions and, and do any kind of immoral act. But many people don't need alcohol today to be able to do those things. Our culture has largely replaced for as a tool for this. Instead of alcohol, we use self-esteem as the preferred tool for making it okay to live for yourself, right? Our culture uses autonomy, self-actualization, self-confidence, self-worth, the cult of supreme self-importance because now if I can do whatever I want, if I can get whatever I desire then I don't need to remove any kind of conscience because I'm living the way that I'm supposed to live. I'm what matters. My supreme happiness is supreme. What makes me happy is what life is all about. There's even a quote in popular culture that gets around in different ways, but it goes like this, quote, there really isn't a big secret to life. Just do what makes you happy, end quote. Right? I mean, that's the prevailing notion in our society, in our culture, in our civilization. And maybe you need alcohol to do that, maybe you don't. But the highest goal is achieve your own happiness, you know? Again, that song, who wouldn't want to be me? You know, I got it all. 
The desires of the flesh, though, always lead away from Christ, not to Him. And so we have to make a decision. Am I going to think like the world thinks, or am I going to have my mind changed to think the way that Christ thinks? Am I going to arm myself with Christ's way of thinking? Because it will change not just the way I think, but the way I act and the way I speak. What's important? It will change your desires so that you'll no longer want what the world wants. And that's really appealing to our flesh. You know, I want to have that free and easy life. You know, I want it so that people want to be like me. (laughs) That's appealing to us. But when this happens, when, when our mind starts to change, when our way of thinking begins to change, we're not going to do what we used to do. All that stuff will be in the past. We'll be living for Him, and we're not even going to have to try to work on trying to stop doing this and stop doing that. We're just going to stop doing that because we don't want to do that anymore. It's all in the past. When that happens, the people around us are going to notice. Verse 4 says they'll notice, and they're going to be surprised that you're not living the same flood of debauchery. And what Peter's talking about here is the shock that you will see from people in our culture when they meet you. <laughs> They'll be genuinely surprised. I, I, I met someone one time, and she, she said, I, wow, I didn't know there was anybody that still thought like that, <laughs> that still believed those things. She was genuinely surprised. People will be shocked that there are still people that read the Bible and still think that way. You know, I've only heard about people. I've never actually met anybody like you that believes the Scriptures. Uh, Literally, the word is a sudden feeling of wonder. Huh. Why? Because they don't understand. They cannot understand. It's a constant flood of debauchery that fills their mind. And I'm not saying that everybody out there, you know, that everybody that loves, that doesn't know Jesus is just the most rotten, terrible sinner that is, you know, the worst person that you could ever imagine. That's all of us. That's all we all are in ourselves, in our own power, in our own strength. But their mind is, is affected by that. Our minds, by the noetic effects of sin, the, the effect of sin on the mind, it doesn't even bring a second thought for people to act and think in these ways that are sinful. So to see someone not doing that, it doesn't register. But it's what happens next that shouldn't surprise us, what Peter says here. He says they begin with surprise, and then they malign you for it. They, they slander you for it. The word is actually the word for blaspheme. They're going to, huh, I didn't know there was, wait a minute. <laughs> you think, that means, that means you think, that means you, uh, be, you know, believe this and you agree with that and, and they get angry. Now, it can be for different reasons on the surface, but it comes down to the life of holiness that you're living that pulls back the cur- curtain on them and the conscience that should have been controlling them and that's been silenced by self focus or alcohol or whatever it is, and the light that you live reveals their thoughts or deeds as sinful, and the flesh doesn't want to be revealed as sinful. It doesn't feel good. They may accuse you, they malign you, they may accuse you of being a holy roller, a religious fanatic, a fundamentalist. They may say all kinds of terrible attacks against you, the the culturally insensitive things, the, the names that they have, misogynist, racist, cisgender, patriarchal, you know, the list goes on. There's so many out there now for people who believe like you believe, but they will malign and they will blaspheme you. And that shouldn't surprise us, right? We need to be ready now. It's the same lesson that John taught in 1 John 3. He he said, go back, way back to the beginning of Genesis, when Cain murdered Abel. Why did he do that? Because Abel's works were righteous, Cain's works were evil. 
And, and, and when he saw that, he felt that, and he got mad, and he took it out on Abel. What does John say there in 1 John 3? Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. <laughs> Peter says the world will be surprised that you don't fall in with them in sin, but we're not be, to be surprised when they begin to malign us for living this way. What should we remember instead? What should prepare us ahead of time? As we're thinking about suffering as Christ does, verse 5, Peter says, keep this in mind, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, that's the content of the thought, but it's not the heart that we think of when we hear things like that. As Pastor Tom prayed this morning, it's not the, oh yeah, well, you're going to die and go to hell one day. That's the truth, but that's not the heart, some kind of heart of boastful arrogance or, or pride that comes up. When we suffer for righteousness by those who live for themselves rather than God, they malign us, we remember the fact that there's a judgment coming one day. And, and all these temporary things are going to be done with, and there's an eternity, a forever coming, and they're going to be judged one day, and so we have compassion on those people, and we keep living this way, and we tell them the truth. Because even death isn't going to take them out. Jesus tells, he says here that it's with respect to this, they're surprised, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Even when they die, they're not going to get away from it. Jesus says to everyone that those who are dead and those who are alive will still be judged. He says in John 5, he talks about that. There'll be a resurrection for judgment and there'll be a resurrection for life. And the people will be judged the people here in First Peter will be judged not just for their sins, but how they maligned you and I. But we have to remember Luke 10, 16, the people rejecting us are rejecting Jesus. And when they reject Jesus, they reject the Father, and they're rejecting our message. But that doesn't bring us happiness. That, that doesn't bring us a joy. Even God doesn't have joy over people suffering forever. He doesn't find joy or pleasure in the death of the wicked. In Jesus 5, the people wanted to stone Jesus. They wanted to kill him for telling the truth. That was real persecution, right? And he wasn't saying this, these things to be mean or to get at, get at them. He said, again, that judgment is coming. And, and death is not going to let you escape. It's going to happen, and you'll be res resurrected either to judgment or to life. But he says, I say these things to you so that you will be saved. In John 5, 34. That's why he was telling them those things. So keep in mind what Jesus kept in mind, <laughs> that suffering is coming, but we look to what God is doing in it. We look to what God's going to do in it at the end. Keep in mind and think the way Jesus kept in mind and, and thought about the truth, not in arrogance, but in love. And we leave those sinful ways in the past. The people who malign us will be judged one day. The people who lived in human passions, self-focused, There'll be judgment one day for that. And we can rest in the truth that we'll not be judged because of Jesus. But we have compassion on those people. That will certainly show us, if, if we're thinking along the right, if we're thinking properly about suffering, if we're thinking the way that Jesus thought, if our mind has been changed, if we're thinking those things. And that's how we're acting. That's what we see coming out of us. It doesn't mean that we're going to stop sinning. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect again. But we're not going to be living in those gross, those gross sins will be behind us. There'll be a, the continual, persistent, degenerate, sinful ways will be overcome by Jesus. There will still be lingering sin that we fight against. 
Brother and sister, there is encouragement for you. If you have serious sins in your past, Jesus has forgiven them, right? He's paid the penalty. He's removed the sins from your account, and the penalty is no longer yours to pay. He's removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. There is hope there. But leave those sinful ways in the past. Live for the will of God and leave those ways in the past. There's a final way that we can tell whether our thinking has changed. In verse 6, when you arm yourself with Jesus' way of thinking about suffering, you will, number three, last through to the end. You will last through to the end. Verse 6. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, for a long time I had a question mark in pencil next to this verse, like, what does this mean? I, until we study it together. Peter's talking about faithful saints from the past. They're dead now, but they weren't when they had the gospel preached to them. He's talking about those faithful saints who are now dead. They heard the gospel preached. They responded to it. Whether it was the coming gospel, that Jesus hadn't come yet, but you believe in what God's going to do, the Messiah he's come, who's bringing, or you heard it from Jesus himself, or you heard it from those who came after Jesus and, and through his word, whichever way it was, whatever way it was, you, you came, they came to the gospel, they heard about Jesus himself or the coming Jesus, they received it, they believed it, they had the gospel. But then they were judged in the flesh the way people are, the way people judge other people, the way that they're going to be judging us. They were judged in the flesh. Some of them were judged by being ignored. Some were judged by being maligned. Others were judged and persecuted and even martyred. But all of them, though dead to the world now, judged by the world, they're still alive. He says they were alive spiritually when they were here because they believed in the gospel. And they're still alive in the spirit just as God is alive in the spirit as a spirit because God's always alive, and He's made that promise to us that we will live with Him. And those Old Testament saints and those saints who came before Jesus in the New Testament, those who've believed in Him since, are alive in the Spirit just as God is. They endured and persevered through all the world's judgment, and so will we when we are changed in our thinking, in our minds, in our hearts, even in our spirit by the regenerating work of God within us. What he's saying is this has been happening all along, where God's people have suffered for the sake of their God. And Jesus said, from the blood of righteous Abel to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who was murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, it's common for saints to have to suffer for the Lord. But because of him, because he is our Lord, we will persevere to the end, will last to the end. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll close with this. 2 Corinthians 4, just as a, a, another voice to add to this, to help us to see and to remember, we'll read these verses together. And I had starting in verse 16, but I backed it up to verse 13 because it, it's, we could just stand up here and read the Word of God and just be encouraged. But we'll, we'll just start in chapter 4, verse 13 of 2 Corinthians. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. There it is, right? So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. That's how we should be thinking. That's how our minds should be changed, to be thinking about the eternal things. The things of God, where our minds are above where, where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. That's what we're thinking about. So our application, what do we do with this? What do we take from here and, and begin to do and, and not stop doing? Our first point here in application, begin now and don't stop comparing what you think with what Scripture teaches. Do it now and do it daily. What does the Word say? What does God say? How did Jesus think? What, what should I be thinking? When you see a difference, the next point, change your thinking to match Scripture, Right? I, I don't think the same way. I, you know, suffering, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Jesus says, it's coming, be ready. Here's how to be ready. It's for my glory, it's for your good, it's for my good, it's going to be great. It will be great in the end, even if it's not here. So we change our thinking to match our scripture. Be brainwashed by it. <laughs> wash your brain, wash your mind of all of the world's teachings and just fill it up with what scripture says. That will prepare us for suffering. And start now, use your everyday suffering, that suffering that we talked about that's already happening, that we already have to endure because we live in this sin-soaked, cursed, deformed world. Use the suffering now to get ready for the suffering that will come or that you've already been through for suffering for righteousness. Start today. It's going to be really difficult to try to start preparing for suffering when it already happens. Finally, praise God as you see these changes in your life. That last point in application, just praise God as you see these changes. That's Him working. That's Him getting His will accomplished, having His purpose seen through to the end. And that's good for you. That's good for me, and that's good for Him and His glory. Father, we praise You, Lord. We lift up Your name, God, and the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, He is who we should look like when You're finished with us. Lord, You won't be finished with us until You call us home. Lord, that is a, a time to rejoice. That's a time to look forward to. God, I pray that we would think that way, that, we would, that you would change our minds and our thoughts to think those eternal thoughts, those eternal ways, God. Father, thank you for all that you've brought us through. Lord, so many things hurt. So many things are difficult. So many things are just, at a human level, just terrible. But God, you use even what's terrible to bring about what's good. Lord, in the end, it will be good because it will be for your good. Our good will be for your good and it will be for your glory. Father, I pray that in each one of us here, you would help us to think that way. You'd help us to, to prepare for even more suffering. Lord, we, we can't claim to know the future, but we know you and you know the future. Lord, you know what will happen. Lord, there are signs all around that there are, are difficult times coming for Christians, difficult times for people who believe your truth and who proclaim your truth and live it. But God, I pray that that would not cause any of us to shrink back in our faith. Lord, that would cause us to press on, to cling to Jesus. Lord, to live as he lived, to think as he thought. 
to speak as he spoke. Father, thank you for what you're doing in each of us, Lord. I pray that you would let us know that you're near as we suffer. Lord, I pray that we would be there for one another, that we would suffer together, that we'd rejoice together. God, we we praise you and we thank you. We give ourselves, we give our lives, our time, our money, our resources, all that we have to you. Lord, would you use it for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.